Hey there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for this Monday, October the 5th. Coming up, we'll talk to the co-founder of SaveHospitality.ca about restaurants in the city that have now been hit with skyrocketing insurance rates. Dr. Ann Collins, president of the Canadian Medical Association, joined us to talk about a new report that says Canada failed to keep health workers safe during the first wave and did not learn the lessons from the SARS epidemic. And finally, the president and CEO of the VON tells us about Ontarians' call for more government support when it comes to home care service. All this coming up on the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. Okay, Canada's restaurant industry already under siege, of course, from the pandemic, facing yet another challenge, skyrocketing insurance rates. Joining us now for more on this is John Sinopoli. He's the co-founder of SaveHospitality.ca and joins us now here on Global News Radio. John, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks to be with you. Appreciate the time. Uh, first off, uh, just spell this out for us. Uh, what's going on when it comes to restaurants and insurance? Yeah, well, it seems that insurance industry as a whole has decided they no longer want to be in the business of insuring uh, hospitality businesses, whether it be banquet halls or bars or restaurants. Um, so normally the process goes when you would... Uh, go to talk to your broker when the time comes every year to renew your insurance and your broker would go to a bunch of different companies, including the one you're already insured with and, and send out like a bid for quotes. And this year, when one of our bars that happened to us, uh, he came back, he says, I don't know what's going on, but your, your current insurer is not interested in insuring you anymore. We're like, really? We've not made a claim in seven years, paid our premiums on time every month. Like what, what seems to be the problem? He's like, the response they gave me was they're moving away from hospitality. So these are companies, and this is a story we've heard over and over from our colleagues and uh, uh, people in the business. Uh, we've heard it from uh, banquet halls. We've heard it from bars. We've heard it from uh, restaurant groups who are insuring a ton of different places at once. And they come back and they're, if they can get a quote, the quote is like seven times last year's premium. That's well, I was about to ask you, John, so it's not even a case of skyrocketing rates. Uh, I guess a lot of insurance companies have done a cost-risk analysis and decided the risk is just uh, too much and, the, and they're just backing away entirely? That's the sounds of it. And and when we've asked insurance, the insurance industry for feedback, what we've heard is, yeah, exactly that. They're, they're doing a, a new analysis and, and uh, what we find odd is that during the COVID shutdown, we were not covered for any business interruption insurance. So we're not sure where the elevated risk lies, and, and they won't tell us. Um, and during the shutdown, of course, they refused to discount our rates or defer any payments. So even though we were closed and um, basically had nothing to insure, uh, we were forced to pay these premiums because, you're, in their words, you're either insured or you're not. So we're like, okay, so we all paid our premiums with no revenue during the shutdown, and we uh, paid our premiums religiously for, you know, some of us 15, 20 years and not made any claims. Then all of a sudden to be dropped kind of doesn't make any sense. What's the point of paying insurance over 20 years if all of a sudden you get dropped and when you actually need it, you get no coverage? So uh, clearly something has to be done on the provincial level. The Ford government needs to step up and and do more than kind of browbeat these people, but to actually, like... Okay, well, you know, first of all, that story sounds similar to what we heard from Ontario drivers early in the pandemic as well, that I'm using my car 70, 80% less, but you still had to pay the same rate or same uh, premium. 
And having said that, I, I wanted to ask you about the provincial government and does the hospitality industry want and or expect the Ford government to step in here uh, with regulations to do something? 100%. 100% we expect the Ford government to step in with regulation. If they can enact change with the insurance industry simply by telling them to get their act together, great. If they, we get no response, it has to be legislated immediately. So I'll take our example for um, uh, as an example, we, we, we have a bar where our insurance ends like October 15th, and we currently have no viable bid for insurance. We're still waiting on a couple possible solutions. And the Insurance Bureau of Canada basically said, oh, you guys should just shop around more. That was their response. Um, so I, I think that there's clearly some um, agreement amongst the insurance industry that there's something that they've seen or some calculation that made they no longer want to insure us. The problem is that, you know, if you have a supplier normally that, you know, decides they don't want to clean your restaurant anymore or they don't want to take away your garbage anymore, you can go find someone else to do it. Or, you know what, if all things fail, you can do it yourself. We cannot insure our own restaurants. By law, we need insurance to open. If we can't get insurance, we can't open. So the insurance companies are basically putting us out of business. Yeah, Is the big fear here, and I mean, just to take this to its a worst possible scenario, is that somebody goes to a dining establishment, contracts COVID, and then sadly passes away, that the restaurant and then the insurance company would be on the hook for that, that they would be liable to that person's family? That seems like what they're considering. However, they won't tell us that that's the problem. And, and I'm sure that there could be something amended in, in the, you know, in the policy that just basically is like user at your own risk. Like you can track COVID from the people around you. It's likely not going to be from our staff, given that everyone's wearing masks and we're sanitizing like crazy and we're following all these strict protocols. But I mean, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, it's not like getting sick off the food. It's a different scenario. This is an airborne virus. You know, would that be the case at a hair salon? Would that be the case at a um, grocery store? Why are we being singled out here? Why are other businesses seem not to be at risk? It says to me there's something else at play, and they don't want to say what it is. Um, And legally, they don't have to say what it is. That's the problem. Yeah, and how much of a curveball is this for the industry? I mean, were restaurants expecting this, and do you think more are likely to close because of it? Yeah, well, there's already bars that have been closing because of it. Um, it's too soon to, to tell, like, what the effect is. But if you, I mean, if you look forward a few months and no one's insurance is getting renewed at a rate that makes any sense, um, you know, then, you know, we were quoted a rate by another insurer at 350% what our premiums were last year. That's just not viable for us. It's like We're already not making money. We're already an industry that's down on our knees, and now we're getting kicked in the head. And let me ask you just finally, because we were listening into the Premier's press conference a little earlier uh, this hour, and uh, it was asked, actually, it was uh, the chief medical officer who was answering on behalf of the Premier when it comes to uh, Dr. Eileen Davila here in Toronto, the uh, head medical uh, officer who wants to further restrict uh, indoor dining just how detrimental uh, would that be uh, to the restaurant uh, industry? Uh, because obviously public health and safety is of the utmost importance, but there comes a time where you need a certain amount of people or bodies in your restaurant to make it viable. A hundred percent. That would be a death nail, given that the federal government has not released their new rent program yet. We don't know what our 
financial uh, landscape is for the next six months. We don't know what supports we'll be getting. Um, you know, they've announced an extension of the wage subsidy, but there's no details. They said they're going to help us on rent, but there's no details. So not being able to have people indoor dining at all would basically like shut the industry down again with no way for us to pay our rent, pay our bills, pay our staff. So I couldn't have been happier with the Premier's response today, which was, show me the evidence. And we've been saying this for um, a week or two. Show us the evidence that restaurants are actually places where things spread more. And, and you know, don't, don't forget, we're the only industry that's required to contact trace every single individual who comes in our door. So, of course, we're going to have more evidence of, of spread coming first because we're the only one actually tracing it. You know, Toronto Public Health just gave up on tracing. So I don't know how they're gathering this evidence that shows that we are more of a risk than any other place of business. All right. Leave it there for now. John, really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Jeff. John Sinapoli is the co-founder of SaveHospitality.ca. This startling new report that says Canada put their healthcare workers at risk of contracting COVID and taking it home to their families because we failed to learn the lessons of the SARS epidemic back in 2003. Dr. Ann Collins is the head of the Canadian Medical Association and joins us on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Collins, good afternoon. Nice to have you back in the program. Uh, Thank you for having me, Jeff. All right. This report, in part, calls SARS a dress rehearsal, and unlike other countries, Canada did not heed the warnings. Uh, In particular, doctor, what do you think we missed? Well, I think that um, this report, like uh, many reports, are, are given to us to help reflect and provide insight on areas that, uh, where we need to do a, a better job, not only now but into the future. And in fact, in July, the Canadian Medical Association raised uh, areas where we needed to see improvement um, to address the resurgence or the second wave of COVID. And in that, uh, we too included concerns around uh, the adequate supply and and use in an appropriate way of uh, personal protective equipment or PPE. And I can tell you from personal experience uh, is that there there have been some improvements made. Do there need to be others and, and to have a coordinated uh, approach to this? Absolutely. Maybe you can remind us all, back in 2003 during SARS, particularly here in Toronto, were there the same sort of concerns around PPE, personal protective equipment? So I I can tell you that, yes, in 2003, I I was a practicing family physician um, here in in New Brunswick. And SARS was um, not to certainly in any way uh, diminish the impact of that disease um, it did not have the same pan-Canadian impact that COVID-19 is having now. Um, and so PPE across the country was not uh, as much of a concern at that time as it is now. The, the, the supply uh, required then uh, was not what is clearly required at this point in time. Sure. Now, one of the most damning quotes from this uh, report uh, concerning what was missed, was missed with SARS is, quote, 
It is a failure to both adequately prepare and urgently respond in a manner that is commensurate with the gravest public health emergency in a century. Again, that's uh, pretty damning. Uh, Doctor, do you concur with that analysis? So I I can tell you, Jeff, at the beginning of this pandemic, and and we have to remember that, that this is a different time now than it was in April. Certainly, there were um, areas and, and uh, institutions that experienced uh, confusion uh, around who should have PPE, what kind of PPE they should be wearing it, when they should be wearing it, how to wear it safely. Um, and so, yes, that, that needed to be uh, addressed and it needed to be relearned, if you will, but all across this country. So with a much greater... Uh, intensity and effort um, than, or broad uh, intensity and effort than, than during the time of SARS. And, and there have been improvements made in those areas as we are now into this second wave. Who bears the responsibility for this, uh, doctor? I mean, we saw reports over the weekend, and we're going to talk some more long-term health, uh, long-term care facilities, sorry, in our next uh, break. But there was a report that the Ford government was warned about what possibly could happen to our long-term care facilities back in January, well before, obviously, the uh, pandemic really took hold in uh, mid-March here. And just wondering, is this a failure of government? Is it a failure of uh, health officials to really recognize uh, just how uh, traumatic the threat was and to adequately prepare? Is it all of the above, do you think? So I think the conversation around laying blame is, is it's, it's a natural one. It's a place that we all go or want to go. But in fact, it detracts or distracts us from the conversation that we really need to be having at all levels, whether you know be the three uh, levels of government, health authorities, uh, and amongst ourselves as Canadians, is what what do we need to do better? Um, what can we do better uh, as we move forward in this very uh, fluid pandemic space? So what is it specifically that we can be and should be doing better other than obviously getting, and you and I have spoke about this uh, in the past, adequate PPE to those that need it on the uh, front line, our healthcare uh, heroes. Uh, what else is kind of, do you think, as a head of the Canadian Medical Association, kind of slipping through the cracks here that needs addressed and addressed immediately? So what we do know, and our message has always been clear, is what we do know and what we can do and what's easy to fix is to follow the protocols. Um, We know that masking, physical distancing, hand washing, uh, re-examining or limiting your personal bubble, and most importantly at this time of the year, and I've said it before and I'll continue to say it, is get a flu shot. Those are all things that all Canadians can address on a, on a day-to-day, e- easy basis. The issue around PP will continue to be discussed. It has to be a coordinated and committed conversation among all of those responsible agencies for this so that there's clear communication to, to help protect to our front-line uh, healthcare providers so that they are protected and, in turn, our patients are protected. When we talk about frontline healthcare uh, providers, I think one of the more alarming stats from this uh, report we've been referring to, and one that will probably surprise a lot of folks, is that Canada's infection rate among healthcare workers is four times that of China. Is that a case of PPE, inadequate PPE, or uh, do we know why this is? 
Um, it, it's, it's likely multifactorial, um, and it, it is of grave concern. You're right. Um, it, it's been reported that, uh, depending upon where you look, that there have been 12 to 16 healthcare, frontline healthcare workers who have uh, died as a result of COVID-19. So all that does is it, it, it reemphasizes what we need to do going forward. Um, about making sure there's a steady supply chain in our hospitals and in our, our communities, long-term care facilities, and let's not for, uh, for, uh, forget our community-based physicians who also are frontline providers. I'm going to ask you as well, a Doctor, while we have you, uh, once again, we're up over 600 cases in this province, in the province of Ontario. Our seven-day rolling average now is over uh, 600. Uh, can you fill us in as to what the situation is uh, specifically with Ontario hospitals, but I guess Canada's hospitals overall when it comes to admissions? Are they on the rise, and are you fearful that the, the worst is yet to come in the next few weeks? So it, it, what, we are, what we hear from our infectious disease experts is that there is a lag um, between our, seeing a rise in uh, community cases and what we will see in, in our hospitals in the uh, two weeks or so following that. Uh, so again, it speaks to our need to do what we can now uh, to prevent that from uh, increasing and, and preventing that burden on those uh, acute care hospitals into the fall. Just finally, of course, a long weekend is uh, looming, the Thanksgiving long weekend. Uh, how concerned are you about that and the numbers that could come out of it? So we've seen, again, um, you know, from the, the Prime Minister on down, a very clear direction uh, to Canadians about how uh, they will choose to celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, this is one of those prime examples where we uh, have to reflect on our, our bubbles, who we connect with. Um, and so I'm, I'm confident that if uh, Canadians continue to follow those public health protocols, it will help. Uh, with cases occurring um, into late October. All right. Dr. Ann Collins is the head of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Collins, appreciate the time with us. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. And as the COVID caseload continues to climb in the province, again, we're over 600 today. That is the seven-day rolling average, 612 it now stands at. So does the concern for loved ones in long-term care. And with that in mind, there's a new initiative being launched called Bring Health Home, which is asking for more government support when it comes to home health care services. Joining us now for more on this is Joanne Poirier. She is the CEO of the VON, the Victoria Order of Nurses, and she joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Joanne, good afternoon. So happy to have your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Jeff. First of all, could you give us an idea of what the current situation is like when it comes to support for those families wanting to keep their uh, elderly loved ones uh, at home? Is it cost prohibitive for many? Well, I think the government-supported programs are, are covered through the uh, tax uh, dollars, and uh, what we are looking for is to have more available home care made available to our clients and caregivers. Uh, so this is something that uh, Bring Health Home is focused on, is bringing that awareness, uh, as well as discussing it with the government. All right, so what would you like to see from government in terms of enhanced support? Mm -hmm. 
Well, we certainly believe that the Ontario government has taken a step in the right direction by announcing the temporary pay uh, enhancement for personal support workers, but we feel that even more support is needed. So the kind of things we would need would be more home care, so further expansion of the services and new models to allow for aging in place, as well as frontline wages, not only for personal support workers, but nursing staff and other professionals, so that they can have secure and stable employment. And that would help us recruit and retain frontline staff. And the third thing I would say would be faster, more flexible services. So we need to streamline the home care process, the referrals, and so that the top dollars go to actual frontline services as opposed to administration. Yeah, maybe you could clarify for us, when it comes to home health care services, those that come into the home and provide those services, are they considered PSWs? Are they eligible for this raise that the government announced, the provincial government last week? Yeah, the personal support workers will be eligible for the raise that's been announced, and I think that's a good start, but we need that to be more permanent. And I will say that home care includes visiting nursing, uh, occupational therapy, palliative care, wound care, cardiac rehab, cancer care, and many other services. And part of this campaign is to make that uh, more uh, prevalent for the people to be aware of all the services that can be provided from a person's home. All right. So uh, obviously, personal support workers are not just limited to LTC or long-term care. They're also classified as those that are going into homes. And maybe you could speak to us a little bit as well, Joanne, as to how important that is to, to maybe keep a loved one at home. Because I know there's a lot of research and a lot of data that suggests that it's a better overall uh, for uh, an elderly person's overall health if they can sometimes remain in the home rather than go to a long-term care facility. Absolutely. We believe that at least um, one in nine people that would be going to long-term care could, in fact, stay home. So people then get to stay in their home environment. They get to see their family members. They get to have the home, uh, the services come to them. And um, it's also safer. So what we found during wave one of COVID is that our infection rate was very, very low compared to congregate settings where people are uh, together in an institutional setting. So, you know, home care is a very safe option for people to remain where they want to be. And this seems like it's a really wise and good investment when we consider the uh, second wave and what we sadly experienced with the uh, first wave of uh, COVID in long-term care facilities, because uh, obviously this would keep uh, the population of those LTCs uh, down and theoretically uh, help when it comes to the uh, possible transmission and spread of COVID. Correct. And we, we believe that it is a, a viable and uh, desirable option. That's where people and their caregivers want to see folks remain. And uh, it does keep them safe. And, you know, during a time where we're asking people to stay home because it's safer, this makes uh, perfect sense. And what we wanted the public to be aware of is the breadth and scope of the services that can be offered at home, which is much more than people might know or think. So, you know, it's it really is clinical care as well as home support that the PSWs can provide. But we have professionals going in, we have nurses, we have occupational therapists, you know, physiotherapists. Uh, We do all kinds of uh, things like ventilator management, diabetic education, and things that are important for seniors. So it's all with a push to have people age in place, age at home where they want to be. 
And Joanne, I'm also thinking about the mental health side here and just how beneficial this could be, not only for the uh, elderly, but also for their uh, family and the children who are still able to maintain some contact with a mom or dad if they're in that home environment as opposed to a long-term care facility, which we saw get locked down during the first wave, of course. That's absolutely correct. I think that social interaction is important. And, you know, I've been on many client visits myself, and you can tell when an elderly person is so happy to see their caregiver come in, the frontline staff, because sometimes it's the only person that they might see in a day. And it keeps them well. It provides them with that social interaction, as well as feeling cared for in an environment that's very familiar to them. Yeah, I was reading over the weekend some of the testimony that came out of the inquiry that began late last week into uh, long-term care facilities. And it was just simply heartbreaking to uh, read what some of the uh, residents were saying, saying that it was akin to being locked away and in jail. I think one of them said that uh, they felt like prisoners were, were treated uh, better, that uh, you know they had more visitation rights and opportunities than they did. Well, it's certainly unfortunate that, you know, COVID has laid bare the shortcomings of institutional care. And uh, what we're seeing and hearing from people is that they want a safer way for their loved ones or themselves to receive the care they need. And, uh, you know, what we are working with the government on is to make sure that Wave 2, that we can provide that safe care at home, which is really people's preference. Yeah. Has the provincial government been uh, receptive to uh, your requests in this initiative? Do they see value in an investment uh, here, do you think? I believe they do. They have a lot of competing priorities, and we are engaged in um, conversations with the government. So, you know, VON, we're working very closely with our partners at Bayshore, Closing the Gap, and SE Health, and we're four thought leaders that have come together to speak to the government and provide some uh, very tangible and concrete ideas about what we might need to modernize home care. We believe that home care um, has a tremendous potential that's yet Uh, not fully tapped, and that uh, with working together, we could figure that out. And I think that it would also help recruit and retain a lot of staff that want to be in health care, but, you know, this would make it more palatable for them to remain in this profession. Just just finally, uh, Joanne, uh, those that are listening right now and are interested in more information or they want to lend their support to the initiative, how can they do so? How can they support Bring Health Home? Yes, so there is a, a website, uh, bringhealthhome.ca, and if people w- wish to be engaged, that's great, and we will have ongoing social media communications uh, being pushed out and also being received. So, uh, you know, if you'd like to know more, go on our website, and uh, we'll be happy to hear from you. Joanne, really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. It goes without saying we'll be watching this uh, with interest, and uh, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks very much, Jeff. I appreciate it. All right, there's a Joanne Poirier, the CEO of the VON, Victoria Order of Nurses. And we promise from day one to stay on this, and we're going to continue to uh, follow this uh, part of the uh, COVID story. That, of course, being uh, our elderly, our most vulnerable, our seniors in long-term care. And this is something that I think has been getting uh, overlooked. And it's important to uh, discuss and to uh, maybe find a path or a way forward if there are families that... uh, Sadly, just can't afford to keep their parents or their elderly loved ones uh, at home. If we could provide them with a little additional support, I mean, talk about a, a great investment because, again, it's uh, better for, you know, the elderly and the families of mental health that they can stay in contact and touch with uh, one another. And it keeps uh, some seniors out of these long-term care uh, facilities. They might thrive a little more uh, at home. 
And it also uh, keeps them away from what has been, uh, sadly, a uh, pretty vulnerable uh, setting uh, to date, anyways, which is uh, long-term care in the province here in the COVID era as we're in the midst of the, the second wave. And that's the podcast for this Monday. Thanks, as always, for downloading and listening. A reminder, you can listen live weekday afternoons from 1 to 3 at 640toronto.com. Find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcast.